You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to First Peter. First Peter, chapter 1. We've been looking at Psalms of Trouble, Help for the Helpless, And I hope those messages have encouraged your heart as they have mine, because it's good to be reminded over and over and over again that we are not alone and that God treasures the prayers of his people. And so this morning, I want to carry that theme forward into trouble and trials today. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Bill preached a message from 1 Peter chapter 1 in verses 1 through 9 titled, when you must face a hostile world. Today, we're going to revisit and unpack just two of those verses. So it won't be the same message. I promise you that. But we are going to just zero in and narrow our focus to two of those verses, verses six and seven. Because in a way, they synthesize so much of what we have already looked at this year. They address pain, suffering, trouble, and trials, and they force us to look beyond our present circumstances while acknowledging our hurt. You've heard me say it so many times before, I love 1 Peter. I love 1 Peter because it was written to suffering Christians and it is just bursting at the seams with comfort theology. It breaks through the darkness and provides light for the soul. So let's see what God has to say about trials and the pain that we experience today. Please follow along as I read 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. On a cold February morning in 1555, an English Puritan named John Hooper was burned at the stake. He was the first of many to be martyred under the vicious rule of Bloody Mary. When he was condemned, Sir Anthony Kingston pleaded with him to recant, shouting, life is sweet, but death is bitter. What kind of an argument is that? Life is sweet, but death is bitter. Don't go. Don't go to the stake. But this was John's response. Listen to this. He said, True it is that death is bitter and life is sweet. But alas, consider that the death to come is more bitter and the life to come is more sweet. Therefore, for the desire and love that I have for the one and the terror and fear of the other, I do not so much regard this death, nor esteem this life, but I have settled myself through the torments and extremities of the fire now prepared for me, rather than to deny the truth of his word. What a response. What an incredible testimony. John Hooper was a man of faith. Both his life and his death testify to a peace that surpasses all understanding. 
Here is a living and dying example of precious faith, real faith, literally tested by fire and grounded in an eternal perspective. Odds are that most of us will never be burned alive for our faith. Most of us probably won't. But even now, as we suffer the pains and the heartaches of life, we should say with John Hooper, I have settled myself through the torments and extremities of whatever fire is now prepared for me. Friend, whatever hardship this life brings, whatever fires you face, you can say, I am settled in the truth of God's word. Guys like Hooper, they don't die unsettled. They don't die in a state of uncertainty. Rather, they accept the fires of death because they know, they know that they know exactly where they are going. If you want to see this thing through to the end, if you want to make it, and not just make it through the fire, but thrive in the fire, and produce something of worth for the kingdom of God and produce a testimony that is worthy of your calling, then friend, you must have a settled faith, no matter what. Because even the sweetest life will still experience times of extreme sorrow. Ordeals, hardships, troubles, miseries, distress, none of these things are abstract concepts for any of us. We all know what pain is feels like. And we all suffer in different ways to different degrees, but we all suffer. Every last one of us. No one is exempt, which is why today's text is so helpful. These verses provide us with the truth that we need to settle our faith and survive the hurricanes of life. Without it, we are guaranteed to spiral into a vortex of self-loathing, Doubt, bitterness, resentment, anger, selfishness, shadowy thoughts, sleepless nights, and unjustifiable behavior. So when the chips are down, we need a constant reminder of the truth. We need an IV hookup of comfort theology and encouragement. And that is exactly what Peter provides for us here. The truth about trials. In these two verses, we have three encouragements for holding on to the joy of our salvation through hardship, through pain and suffering, or three reasons to rejoice in trouble. The first encouraging truth is simply that trials are temporary. Trials are temporary. Look at verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let's break that verse down phrase by phrase. He begins by saying, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. So the first thing we need to know is what's the this? What is the this? What exactly is it that I am supposed to rejoice in? Well, the answer is everything. Everything that builds up to this verse. Look at what Peter says prior to this, starting in verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. So what's the source of our joy when everything falls apart, when life beats us senseless? Where does our joy come from? It's all there in the greatness of God's mercy. It's our spiritual rebirth, our living hope, our resurrection, our protected inheritance, God's powerful guardianship, the revealing of our salvation. All of that, all of that gives us a cause to rejoice. That is what we rejoice in. It is the overwhelming security and certainty of our salvation. We rejoice because we have so much to be thankful for. So much. And by the way, this isn't some quiet meditation of the heart that that Peter is referring to here. This word that Peter uses for rejoice, it could accurately be translated greatly rejoice or overjoyed. It refers to an outward expression of exuberance that overflows from an inward state of rapture. That's what he describes here. And he says, In this you are overjoyed, you are bursting at the seams with joy. And who wouldn't be? If God has been merciful to you by causing you to be born again to a living hope that is grounded in the same power that raised Christ from the dead, if God has set aside an indestructible inheritance for you, if God has decided to personally guard it and keep it safe, and guard you and keep you safe until your salvation is ultimately realized at the end of all things, if these truths apply to you, then you have every right to rejoice. Every right to rejoice. But on on the other hand, if you know that you know that these verses do not apply to you, if you are uncertain as to whether or not they do, then friend, you have every right to to drown in your sorrow. Every right. And I don't say that lightly or flippantly or arrogantly. I'm just the messenger because apart from this living hope, every other hope that we have that we could hold on to and put our trust in is dead. It's dead. Your 401k has nothing on this inheritance. Your hopes of impressing this God of great mercy with with good deeds and acts of service, they're not going to cut it. And your power to save yourself, keep yourself, and guard yourself is like a child with a balloon thinking that they can fly if they just jump high enough. Without this living hope, you don't stand a chance. None of us do. You need a savior. We all do. So if you have any doubt whatsoever as to what your standing before God might look like, then friend, talk to me or another believer right away so we can point you back to the gospel of grace and settle that matter once and for all. Because everyone, everyone goes through hard times, but friend, only the Christian can find joy in the midst of misery. Because we are the ones who have verses three through five. We are the ones who have every right to rejoice, to own these truths, and to overflow in praise. Look at the next phrase. He says, though now, though now, as in right now, 
So all of this is happening at once. Our grieving, our trial, our joy, it's all happening right now. But praise God for the next phrase, for a little while. For a little while, because every trial is temporary. I am so thankful, so thankful that no trial lasts forever. Trials have an expiration date, every last one of them. Unlike our eternal indestructible inheritance with Christ, trials are temporary. Now some might claim that this phrase is a promise, that it guarantees short trials, but that's hogwash. We know that's not true. Some folks carry affliction their entire lives. Some people are born into affliction. So that cannot be the point that Peter is trying to make here. Rather, he's saying that nothing we face here and now on this earth is nearly as permanent as eternity. Nothing. A thousand lifetimes of intense sorrow are merely a drop in the bucket compared to forever. Less than that, it is dust on the scales. I mean, granted, it, it doesn't feel like that when life hurts. It, it's hard to think of a time when things will not always be the way that they are right now, but we know that a time is coming when there will be no more pain, sorrow, sin, or death, just our glorified Christ and us glorified with him. That is an encouraging, encouraging truth. Even if you live to be 109, you will still look back on your life in glory and say, it was just for a little while. It was just for a little while. Now the rest of the verse describes the temporary nature of trials with three qualifying phrases that help fill in any gaps that we might have in our theology of trials and, and trouble. That God is, is sovereignly orchestrating all of these things. We see in the first phrase, if necessary. If necessary. And that reminds us that trials are necessary. That God is in control of all of our circumstances. That is to say that nothing we face is unnecessary. Every trial serves a purpose. According to James 1, various trials produce endurance, steadfastness, fullness, and complete perfection. In other words, trials fill in all of those gaps that we have in our lives. They complete us. They strengthen us in areas of weakness until ultimately we lack nothing. And in lacking nothing, we gain everything. God's ultimate goal is to see us perfected more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And his son is perfect. And so he uses trials to perfect us, to make us more and more like him. Trials are the means that God uses to accomplish that purpose in our lives. So trials are necessary. The next phrase tells us that trials are nasty. They're nasty. He says, you have been grieved. You have been grieved. I'm, I'm thankful that Peter throws that little phrase in here. You have been grieved. He acknowledges the fact that these temporary trials are still painful. He doesn't ignore the pain or promote some sick worldview that pretends to enjoy suffering. He doesn't do that and neither should we. Just because we have a reason to rejoice in suffering doesn't mean that we should deny the pain and the grief that we go through. It's okay. It's okay for us to do that, for us to acknowledge the pain. 
So how do we balance those two things? How do we maintain a balance between hope and heartache at the same time? Well, we begin and end with the truth. We remember the truth. We hold on to the truth, and we find comfort in the truth because that is where real joy comes from. And by making that our default, we then discover the art of grieving with hope, which is so important because trials are nasty. They're awful. And then finally, the last phrase of verse 6 tells us that trials are numerous. They're numerous. Peter adds, by various trials, meaning that there is more than one, and there is more than one type. Trials come in all shapes and sizes. Even the word that Peter uses here for trial, it's a very broad and common word for trouble. It's a common word. He could have used more specific words like persecution or tribulation, but oddly enough, those words never appear in any of Peter's writings. He is writing to people who are being persecuted, yes. People who are suffering for the name of Christ, yes. But he never uses that word particularly. Instead, he uses this more broad, this general word for trials. It shows up a lot for trouble. And that's important because Peter is addressing more than their persecution. Their persecution certainly falls under that, that canopy. But he's addressing so much more than that. He is addressing all the various types of trials a Christian faces. And we will face many various types of trials, like he says here in the text. Some of us will have physical trials, or relational trials, or emotional trials, or spiritual trials. And these can manifest themselves in a myriad of forms through financial trials, or marital trials, or parental trials, or vocational trials, and the list goes on and on and on. It's, it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. Insert your category here, and many times we will go through multiple trials, multiple types of trials at the same time. You might even find yourself dealing with many trials and, and feeling overwhelmed by all of them. Smile. That means God loves you. He certainly does. But Peter tells us that these trials, as awful as they are, as numerous as they are, they are also necessary. They are necessary, nasty, and numerous. They are vital, vicious, and various. The trials are all of this and more. But thankfully, thankfully, they are also temporary. They're temporary. As hard as they try, they cannot rob us of the joy of our salvation. And in the end, they don't last forever because the horrors of this life all have a timestamp. To quote another Puritan, Thomas Watson, in his masterwork, The Art of Contentment, he writes, whatever affliction or trouble a child of God meets with, it is all the hell he shall ever have. I love that. That is a good quote. Whatever affliction or trouble a child of God meets with, it is all the hell he shall ever have. Christian, whatever you face in this life, it is all the hell you will ever have. So friend, don't forget these truths. Don't trade the joy of your eternal salvation for the hopelessness of a temporary trial. It's not worth it. 
Instead, hold on to God's truth and hold on to God's promises and be encouraged by them. That's the first great reason to rejoice in trouble. Because as bad as they are, we know that all trials are temporary. They're temporary. Number two, you should rejoice because trials are tests of faith. Tests of faith. Look at the beginning of verse 7. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Let's stop there for a moment. It might not feel like it, but tests of faith are actually a good thing. They're good things for us to go through. They give us a much-needed validation of authenticity. Much like the tests and the quizzes that we suffered through in school as kids, most of us didn't look forward to test day. There was always that one kid on the front row who did, but he was weird. <laughs> most of us don't look forward to test day because it's stressful, unless you're a know-it-all. But without them, without tests and quizzes, we would have no idea how we were doing in the class. Our grades, ideally at least, are designed to reward our work and to authenticate our knowledge, to prove what we know. But when it comes to faith and fire, the only grades available are pass and fail. Those are the only grades. Pass and fail, because those are the only two options. You're either saved or you're not. Peter says a genuine faith passes through the fiery test, but a fake faith doesn't make it. That's what he says here. Just as metal is thrown into a furnace and only the purity of it remains, likewise we are cast into the furnaces of life in order to test the genuineness of our profession of faith. So the question is simply this, are you for real? Are you for real? Is your faith a pure faith or one that's tainted with the alloys of unbelief? Do you melt when blasted with the heat of anguish? If you call yourself a Christian, here is your opportunity to prove it. Trials are tremendous opportunities to show yourself and the world what you are made of. Those who pass the test come out the other side with something better, something they didn't have before, and that's assurance. It's confidence. It's knowing that they know that they are saved our raw faith is proved to be genuine and permanent. So in the end, trials are a painful gift. They hurt, they grieve us, yes. They come in all shapes and sizes. And even though we know they're necessary, we thank God that they're temporary. But they are still a painful gift. Why? Because they strengthen our resolve and they verify our salvation. They sharpen us and develop our character. And then that character will eventually give way to what? hope. Hope. In Romans 5, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Trials tear us down to build us up into something stronger, more steadfast, more able to endure to the end, and they produce endurance. Remember James 1, the testing of your faith develops what? Steadfastness. Both James 1 and, and Romans 5, they share the same word that is often translated endurance. And it literally means to bear up under a great weight. So when the pressure comes, we bear up under the great weight of it all. We endure, we stand firm. And, and if it were not for our trials, if it were not for them, 
then our faith would never be tested. Our faith would never be authenticated, and we would be left to second-guessing. But the assurance of authenticity, that divine validation, that ultimate stamp of approval from God himself, that is the most valuable thing there is. It's priceless. It's better than riches, and it's better than gold. He says it's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Back when this letter was written, gold was the most valuable metal in the world. And the goldsmith would take his ore and he would place it into the furnace long enough for the flames to remove its impurities. He would then pour it out and fashion it into a beautiful piece, something of worth, something of value, far more valuable than it was before it was refined. And Peter reminds us that a pure faith is better than pure gold because genuine faith that has been tested by the heat of life yields eternal salvation. Friends, God is not in the business of growing pansy Christians in temperature-controlled environments. He doesn't plant us in little pots or gently water our fragile leaves with a fine mist. That is not what God wants to make of his church. No, he wants a forest of mighty redwoods who have endured triumphantly against years of weathering storms. He doesn't remove us or turn down the heat because glasshouse pansy Christians are lame. They're useless to him. They look good on a shelf, but that's all they do. Instead, he exposes us to the elements. He turns up the heat and he blasts us where we need it. A fine mist does little for cleansing the Christian of pride, self-reliance, or the pollution of sin. So God plants his people in the wild. It has been said that the eastern goldsmith would keep the gold in the fire until he could see his face reflected in the metal. And that is exactly what our loving Father does with us. In the trial, too often we focus on the flames. We focus on the pain and the things that are hurting us, that are burning us, that are tearing us apart. But when God looks through the fire, he sees a reflection. He sees the splendor and the beauty of Christ. These tests of faith, they serve a glorious purpose. They burn away the trash to make us more like Jesus and to prove our faith is real. Only a great God can make the best out of our worst. These are incredible truths. And as good as they are, as wonderful as they are, that trials are temporary and that they are tests of faith, and as comforting as all that is, to know that God is in control and that the pain is temporary and that it all has a purpose, that's all good stuff. But friends, now we get to the good part, the really good part. Because here at the end, we see that trials are totally worth it. Totally worth it. Look at the rest of verse 7. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the result of a genuine faith that has been proven true by trials? Three things, praise, glory, and honor. Let's not read over those words quickly or filter them out. Rather, let's take a moment to appreciate the meaning of each one. The first word, praise, means public approval. 
And here it refers to the open recognition that we will receive from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4.5 says that each one will receive his commendation from God. At the end of all things, those who have, endeared, who have endured to the very end, they will hear God say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's praise, public approval, it's open recognition, and it's totally worth it. Glory. Glory refers to the completion of our transformation into the image of Christ himself, into an image that resembles our glorified Savior. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 tell us, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Inwardly, this is already happening. Even now, our, our inner man is being formed and fashioned day by day into the image of Christ. But soon the day is coming when he will transform even our outer bodies. Even this thing will be transformed into an eternal monument to his glory. In Romans 8.18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. John says, When we see him, we will be like him. And to finally behold his glory will change us completely. We will not be who we were before. It will be unlike anything we have ever known. In other words, it's totally worth it. And then the final result we see here is honor. Honor. Another word for honor is distinction. Every true follower of Christ will receive distinction from the Father as part of their reward. This is a promise that Jesus made 30 years before this letter was written. Back in John 12, 26. John 12, 26, he said this. He said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Now get this. He says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. I can't even begin to imagine what that will look like, let alone feel like to be honored by God himself. I mean, think about it. This God, who is eternal, who spoke all things into existence, he will honor me? This God, who sees my every sin, who knows my darkest thoughts, he will honor me? This God, who sent his son to become a man, live a perfect life, die at the hands of sinful men, only to conquer death, rise from the grave and ascend on high where he then continually sits and prays for the Father to, to accept me on, on my behalf. This God will someday honor me? Beloved, I don't know. I don't know the ins and the outs of what your trial might be today, of your pain. I don't know what you're facing, but God does. This God does. And he says your faith is worth holding on to, to the very end, because the results of a tested faith are totally 
worth it. If you are suffering today, the best thing you can do is to remember these truths and to cry out to the one who truly cares, to cry out to the one who has promised eternal blessings in exchange for these temporary troubles. Cry out to the one who knows what it's like to bear the full weight of your sin. Cry out to Jesus. He is your greatest friend. He is your greatest savior, your only hope, your living hope. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friend, when the world turns against you, turn to Jesus. Don't become a weak-willed, self-absorbed, little-faith, pansy, so-called Christian with eyes fixed on the flames, not concerned with forever, not focused on the Savior. Don't fail the test. Turn to Jesus and remember the truth about trials. Well, before we close the book, let's not overlook that final phrase, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. History is full of legends, stories that may or may not be true. But they all live on and they continue to inspire and excite the imagination from one generation to the next. One such legend surrounds the battle for Waterloo in 1815, just a little over 200 years ago. On one side you had the Duke of Wellington and the forces of England. And on the other side you had Napoleon and the armies of France. This was well before the invention of the telephone or even the telegraph. So the people of London had to wait nervously for word to arrive long after the fighting had ended. They didn't know. Did we win? Did we lose? We won't know. We have to wait. It was a history-making battle, and everyone was on pins and needles wanting to know the outcome until finally a boat appeared off into the distant fog. And this boat used a device called a semaphore to relay the message back to shore. Unfortunately, the message was brief, and discouraging. Only two depressing words came through. Wellington defeated. Wellington defeated. As news traveled quickly, hearts sank all over London. The value of war bonds plummeted. Fortunes were made and lost, and grown men were seen weeping in the streets. England's last stand had failed, and Napoleon's comeback appeared to be unstoppable. It wasn't until some time later, when the fog lifted, that the rest of the message finally came through and said, Wellington defeated the enemy. Wellington defeated the enemy. And immediately, hopelessness transformed into happiness. Tears of agony became tears of joy as the people realized that their defeat was a lie and their victory was real. And so they exploded with rapturous resolve, and Napoleon never recovered from that defeat. Friends, this story is but a small taste of what it will be like for us once Christ is revealed. For now, the world lives in a fog, and when they look to the cross, all they see is defeat. It's all foolishness to them, and we are all fools for believing in it. 
but soon the day will come when everyone will see Jesus for who he truly is. Everyone will know him as king when he is revealed as king. Church, victory is ours. Christ has defeated the enemy. The rest of the world only sees half the message. They see Christ defeated. But we know the truth. Christ defeated the enemy. Death has been destroyed. Sin's authority has been abolished. And we have been born again to a living hope. Why and how? It is for his glory and it is by his victory on the cross. And soon that fog, the, cl- the, the, the fog that, that clouds the minds of the wicked today, it will soon disappear. It will soon be lifted and all will see his victory. All will see that he is king and all will know on that day that we were actually right all along. That our seemingly worthless faith is extremely precious after all. And the so-called men of power and influence, the wisest this world has to offer, they will all cower in the shame of their foolishness. And they will beat their chest for the rest of eternity saying, why didn't we believe? Why didn't we respond? Listen, being a Christian is not popular now. But trust me, you will want everyone to know that you are a Christian on that day. You will. As we close... Let's go ahead and turn real quickly to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Just a few pages to the left. We can't talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ without visiting 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Paul encourages this fantastic church with these words. He says, Since indeed God considers it just, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And here we go. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Christian, your unwavering belief, your tested faith, is precious it's precious it is precious now and it will be precious then when you stand amazed and marveling at the glory of his might among the redeemed this is the revelation of jesus christ when the world is turned upside down when everything is flipped over onto its head when we finally share in the visible glory of our risen savior forever and ever For now we see him through the eyes of faith alone, but that will not be the case once the curtain is drawn back for good at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, can you see how encouraging Peter's Peter's words are here for the suffering Christian? Can you see how encouraging this is? My favorite dead preacher, Charles Spurgeon, 
once said, there are no cross wearers in heaven, or sorry, crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. Let me get that right. There are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. Meaning that we all suffer. We all carry the cross for our time here on earth. But eventually that cross gets exchanged for a crown. Trials are coming, friends. They're coming in all shapes and sizes. So bear this in mind while you bear your earthly cross. These temporary afflictions, they are here to harden and prove your faith so you can share in the praise and the glory and the honor of Christ himself once he is revealed. That's good news. That's comfort theology at its best. Knowing that no matter how bad it gets, we need to always remember these truths about trials, that they are temporary, they are tests of faith, and friends, ultimately, they are totally worth it. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you again for these truths. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the trials that we do face. We know that they are necessary, they are nasty, and they are numerous. But Lord, they are temporary. And they are here for a short season. For even if we enjoy them, or enjoy them, even if we suffer through them for the rest of our lives, Lord, we know that we will enjoy you forever. They are here for just a little while. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the purpose they serve, that they authenticate our faith, that they tell us whether or not our profession is genuine. God, I pray that for each of us, as our faith is tested through various trials of all kinds, I pray that we would be found true. I pray that we would grow as believers and that we would endure to the end. Lord, work in our hearts. We look forward to that day when the Son of God is revealed in glory. We look forward to that day. And Lord, thank you for these promises, these precious promises in your word. That for the one who endures to the end, he will receive the crown of life. That he will receive the victor's crown. That we will receive praise and honor and glory from you. Lord, thank you for these truths. May we be encouraged by them. May we hold on to them and may we live them through the fires of this life for whatever comes our way. In your name, amen.